It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo, but I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome to Origins, a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information, theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, just about anything really. If you're interested in anything and everything, come along and listen and enjoy my show. Welcome to Origins, episode 34. This one's entitled, Was Mars Too Salty for Life? Other stories in this episode include, A fossil reveals the oldest live birth, A common bacteria has been linked to cot death, And dinosaur tracks have been discovered in the Arabian Peninsula. In Egypt, they plan to test the DNA to identify a mummy, Some facts about Australia, And... Dating the Shroud of Turin. In a Polish monastery, they may hold an unknown Mozart work, and religion is a product of evolution, software suggests. Stonehenge was a long-time burial ground, and from the book Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things, Superstitions, 50,000 Years Ago, Western Asia. When I looked at it, my jaw dropped. I said we are onto something big here. That's a quote by Professor John Lane from the Museum of Victoria. This story comes from the bbc.co.uk website and it's written by Rebecca Morell, who is a science reporter for the BBC. It's entitled, Fossil Reveals Oldest Live Birth. 
And if you visit the show notes at www.origins.info, there is a link to this article, and in that link there is a short video showing the oldest known example of a mother giving birth to live young. A fossil fish uncovered in Australia is the oldest known example of a mother giving birth to live young, scientists have reported in the journal Nature. The 380 million year old specimen has been preserved with an embryo still attached by its umbilical cord. The find reported in Nature pushes back the emergence of this reproductive strategy by some 200 million years. Until now scientists thought creatures from these times were only able to develop their young inside eggs. Before this find, the earliest evidence for this form of reproduction came from reptile fossils dating to the Mesozoic era, 248 to 65 million years ago. The team said the latest discovery had a remarkably advanced reproductive biology, similar to modern sharks and rays. The extremely well-preserved fossil represents a new species of placoderm fish. The placoderms were an incredibly diverse group and are thought to be the most primitive known vertebrates with jaws. These armoured fish dominated seas, rivers and lakes throughout the Devonian period, 420 to 360 million years ago. This latest placoderm specimen, which measures about 25 centimetres or 10 inches in length, was found in the Gogo area of Western Australia in 2005 by a team led by John Long from Museum Victoria. Close examination revealed that the team had unearthed something unusual. Professor Lane said, When I looked at it, my jaw dropped. I said, We are onto something big here. The team found an embryo and an umbilical cord, which had been exquisitely preserved along with the female fish. The scientists have named it Metapiscus attenborii, in honour of the naturalist Sir David Attenborough, who first drew attention to the Gogo fish fossil sites in the 1970s. Sir David told the team that he was very, very flattered to have had his name given to such an astonishing creature. The discovery prompted the researchers to return to another fossil that they had unearthed in 1986. Close investigation revealed that this too contained evidence of live births. It contained three embryos. Professor Lane said, After we saw this, we realised we had totally nailed it. Everyone was convinced that this creature bore live young. Until the latest fossil find, scientists thought life forms that existed during these times had only evolved to reproduce using externally fertilised eggs, a primitive version of the way fish spawn today. Now, however, the team believes this ancient species bore live young through internal fertilisation, viviparity. Dr Long commented, This is not only the first time ever that a fossil embryo has been found with an umbilical cord, but it is also the oldest known example of any creature giving birth to live young. The existence of the embryo and umbilical cord within the specimen provides scientists with the first ever example of internal fertilisation, or sex, confirming that some placoderms had remarkably advanced reproductive biology. He added, This is a world-first fossil find, and it opens a window into the developmental biology of an entire extinct class of organisms. Commenting on the paper, 
Zarina Johansson, a paleontologist at London's Natural History Museum, said, It is extremely rare to find preservation like this in the fossil record. This new discovery extends the record of viviparity back almost 200 million years in the fossil record. Placoderms represent the most primitive group of jawed vertebrates. So this work shows the capacity for internal fertilisation and giving birth to live young evolved very early during vertebrate history. The following article comes from thenewscientist.com and it's some more information or ideas as to the cause of SIDS, that Southern Infant Death Syndrome, which can be so heartbreaking for new parents. It's such a perplexing thing, and they think they may have now linked a common bacteria to cot death. And this story has been written by Jason Palmer. There is more reason than ever to believe that two common bacteria are part of the cause of Southern Infant Death Syndrome, or SIDS, commonly called cot death. While many factors contributing to the risk for SIDS have been identified, the mechanism of its cause has remained a mystery. A link to bacterial infections was proposed decades ago, but evidence of the bacteria in SIDS victims has remained scarce. Now a team of researchers from the Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children has shown that specific bacteria are more prevalent in SIDS babies. A team went over the result of autopsies of more than 500 infants who died aged between one week and one year. They then compared the rate of infection by the bacteria Staphylococcus aureus and Escherichia coli in infants whose cause of death was known and those in SIDS babies. What they found was that 26% of the autopsies in the explained cases showed infection by the bacteria, whereas in the SIDS cases the rate of infection was nearly twice that. What's good about this is it's a large study at one institution where all the cases were investigated in the same way, so it's enabled us to really provide harder evidence, said Marion Malone, one of the study's co-authors. The prevalence of the bacteria is certainly indicative of a connection with the cause of death, but their presence, even in explained deaths, means that a test for them cannot be used as a diagnostic or as evidence for or against other explanations for deaths. George Haycock, scientific advisor to the UK's Foundation for the Study of Infant Deaths, warns that there isn't just one answer to the SIDS mystery. This is certainly not the cause of SIDS, which is almost certainly multifactorial, he says. Even in the cases where no cause can be identified, there may be multiple factors operating. The role of the bacteria in the so-called bacterial toxin theory could tie some of those multiple factors together. The idea is that the bacteria grow in the upper respiratory tract of babies, releasing toxins that are the ultimate cause of death. It's a theory that would fit the facts, Malone said. We know that prone sleeping, or sleeping on the front, can increase the number of pathogenic organisms in the upper airway. 
We know that if the mother has been smoking during pregnancy, it can alter the immune response to toxins. Even the genetic differences among SIDS babies are related to immune response. The theory, Malone says, could tie a lot of things together. It's another piece of evidence fitting in with lots of other evidence that has been gathering, pointing to these bacteria, says Jim Morris, a pathologist at the Royal Infirmary, Lancaster, the UK. None of this is positive evidence, but it's another important step to understanding what's going on. The following story comes from the Mail Online at www.dailymail.co.uk and it's entitled Dinosaur Tracks Discovered in the Arabian Peninsula. The tracks of a herd of dinosaurs have been discovered on mud flats in Yemen. The first discovery of dinosaur footprints on the Arabian Peninsula. They were made by 11 long-necked sauropods, the largest land animal in Earth's history, which walked on four stout legs and eight plants. The nice thing is we finally filled in a bit of a blank spot in the dinosaur map, said Anne Schulp a paleontologist at the University of Maastricht in the Netherlands, who worked on the study. Until ten years ago, not even bones were known from the Arabian Peninsula, and at last we have some dinosaur tracks. The footprints dating from about 150 million years ago showed the sauropods travelling at the same speed along a river, likely in search of food, Schlupp said in a telephone interview. The creatures roamed the Earth from about 228 million years ago to 65 million years ago, the middle of the age of dinosaurs. The well-preserved tracks, found about 50 miles north of Yemen's capital, Sana'a, ranged from 43 centimetres to 73 centimetres and suggested strides of about 2.5 metres, Schlupp added. Paleontologists have so far unearthed only a few dinosaur fossils from the Arabian Peninsula and possible fragments of a long-necked dinosaur from Yemen. The nice thing about tracks is you can tell what these guys were doing, Schlupp said. You can put some life into the fossils. The researchers had first found evidence of a large ornithopod, a two-legged plant-eating dinosaur, and then discovered the sauropod's tracks close by. Schlupp and his colleague, Mohammed al-Wasabi, of the University of Yemen, measured the shape and angle of the different digits in one of the prints to identify the bipedal dinosaur as an ornithopod. 
They then use the size, shape and spacing of the other prints to determine body size, travel speed and other distinguishing features of the sauropod herd. They reported in the journal PLOS One on Wednesday. We really want to learn when did which dinosaurs live, where and why was that, Schlupp said. How did the distribution change over time? Why did one replace another and move from one place to another? And from the LiveScience.com website, Salah Nazrawi from the Associated Press has written the following article about how Egypt plans a DNA test to identify a mummy. Cairo. Egypt plans to conduct a DNA test on a three and a half thousand year old mummy to determine whether it belongs to King Tutmos I, one of the most famous pharaohs, the country's chief archaeologist said on Thursday. Zahir Hawass, Egypt's antiquities chief, said the test will be carried out on an unidentified mummy found in ancient Thebes on the west bank of the Nile, what is today Luxor's Valley of the Kings. Egyptian experts will also x-ray the mummy, Hawass was quoted as saying by the nation's Middle East news agency. Hawass said a mummy currently on display in the Egyptian museum that was purported for many years to have belonged to Tutmos I does not actually belong to him. Tutmos I was the third pharaoh of Egypt's 18th dynasty of pharaohs. His reign is generally dated from 1506 to 1493 BC. He succeeded Kim Amenhotep I. He was succeeded by his son Tutmos II, who was in turn succeeded by Tutmos II's sister Hatshepsut, ancient Egypt's most powerful female pharaoh. Egypt has acquired a $5 million DNA lab funded by the Discovery Channel which has become a centrepiece of an ambitious plan to identify mummies and re-examine the royal mummy collection. The best way to obtain accurate results is from the DNA found in a cell's nucleus, because it contains information from both parents. But mummy DNA is usually so deteriorated that the chances of finding usable nuclear DNA are slim. Hawass did not say what the mummy's DNA will be compared to to identify it. Last year, Egypt started a DNA test on a female mummy to determine whether it is Queen Hatchet's sup. The results were never made public. There is some secrecy surrounding Egypt's DNA testing of mummies. Hawass had long refused to allow DNA testing on Egyptian mummies and only accepted it recently on condition it would only be done by Egyptian experts. He has never disclosed full results of the examinations, sometimes on grounds of national security, though Hawass has never explained the reasons for this. Apparently there is concern that the tests could cast doubt on the Egyptian lineage of the mummies. The DNA tests on the mummy will start Friday at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo after it is flown from Luxor. The mummy has remained in its tomb in the Valley of Kings since its discovery.
Well, the sound of the laughing jackass, or the kookaburra as we know it, is the indication that this is the little article called Australia Facts. Most people. New South Wales, with 6.8 million people, has the largest population of any of Australia's states. Victoria, with 5 million people, is the next most populous. The Big Dry. Australia has the lowest precipitation of any of the world's inhabited continents. Antarctica gets less. 70% of Australia gets less than 500 millimetres or 20 inches of rainfall per year. And at the moment in Australia we are going through a big drought and it's been hanging around for about six years now so uh, we're getting a little bit sick of it. Australian export facts. The top 10 countries Australian goods are exported to are Japan, USA, China, New Zealand, South Korea, the UK, Taiwan, Singapore, India, Hong Kong and the South African Republic. Highest and lowest temperatures. Australia's highest temperature, 51 degrees Celsius or 123 degrees Fahrenheit, was recorded at Udnadatta in South Australia in 1960. The lowest temperature was minus 23 degrees Celsius or minus 9 degrees Fahrenheit, measured high in the mountains at Charlotte Pass in New South Wales. Go directly to jail. Around 115 Australians per 100,000 of population are in jail. This compares with New Zealand at 155, the UK at 141, Germany at 100, Spain at 138, Canada at 116, South Africa at 400, and boy oh boy you guys in the US, 700. And finally, the lucky country. Australia has long been known as the lucky country. This is not surprising when you learn it is the world's largest iron ore exporter and largest producer of bauxite and alumina. Australia also has the world's largest deposits of silver, zinc, zircon and easily extracted uranium, over 40% of world resources. It also has about 10% of the world's gold resources. And at the moment we're going through a minerals boom over here, which is buffering us somewhat from the credit crisis and things that are happening overseas. And now we're about to delve into the mysterious. From the www.mysteriesmagazine.com website comes an article by Ken Monchien, Dating the Shroud of Turin. For centuries, the Shroud of Turin, 
a 14-foot-long, 3-foot-wide sheet of linen, imprinted with the ghostly image of a bearded man, bearing a crown of thorns and wounds in his wrists, feet and side, has been the object of devout veneration. However, modern science has raised many questions about the holy relic's true origins. According to the most accurate tests available, the shroud was made no earlier than the 13th century. Still, despite such high-tech investigations, scientists have been unable to resolve the controversy to the satisfaction of all. In the Middle Ages, holy relics could be found everywhere, from the mightiest cathedral to the humblest parish church. Some, such as the tunic of the Virgin in Chartres Cathedral in France, were the object of pilgrimages. Others were obtained at great risk, as when a cadre of Venetian merchants pilfered St Mark's bones from Alexandria in the 9th century. Some were even fought over, such as when Edward I captured the Holy Rood, a piece of the true cross, from the Scots in 1296. Not only were such objects thought to work miraculous cures, but they enabled people to touch holiness, bringing something of the sanctity of heaven, the reality of the Bible, and the promise of a better world into their own lives. Because these items were in such demand, it was perhaps inevitable that people would begin manufacturing them. It is a common joke among medievalists that if all the pieces of the true cross were gathered together, there would be enough wood to create an entire forest. Yet the fabrication of such relics is not fraud in the modern sense, because of the belief inherent in medieval religion. Much like how a scale replica of a jet airliner is a representation of a real 747, so too did medieval believe that a vial of holy blood, real or fake, participated in the sanctity of the real blood of Christ. The history of the Shroud of Turin is, for these reasons, somewhat obscure, though the first written evidence comes from 1357, when it was recorded being in a church in Loray in southern France. Many people insist that the Shroud is much older. Supposedly, the relic passed from one of Christ's disciples to King Abgar V of Edessa sometime in the early 1st century, and thence to Constantinople. In 1204, it was stolen from the Byzantines by the French knight, Geoffrey de Charnay, during the Fourth Crusade. But if the shroud is so venerable, why was it not mentioned in the historical record, including the New Testament, earlier than the mid-14th century? Indeed, as early as the 1380s, churchmen such as Pierre de Assis, the Bishop of Troyes, were speaking of the shroud as a forgery. In 1900, based on the examination of medieval reports, letters and decrees, the French priest and medieval historian, Sir Ulysse Vallier, produced his claim that the shroud was a fake. Since its provenance leaves much to be desired, an alternate means of investigating the mystery of its date was required. Since the 19th and early 20th centuries, Critics have pointed out that the image of Jesus on the shroud is not anatomically correct, but rather shows unusual elongation and asymmetry that is reminiscent of medieval religious iconography. 
Others countered this argument with the fact that the direction of the blood flow on the body depicted on the shroud was the same as if the figure had died with its arms outstretched, not lying supine. Moreover, believers noted that the nail holes depicted on the figure on the shroud were in the figure's wrists, not its hands, which is now believed to be the way people were crucified during Roman times. Then in the 1990s, Swedish textile expert Mechthild Fleury Lemberg noticed that the style of the cloth's weave, as well as its stitching, matched those used in ancient Israel around the 1st century AD. Therefore, either medieval forgers of the shroud had a detailed knowledge of ancient textiles, which is highly unlikely, there are fortuitous similarities between medieval and ancient textiles, or the shroud's cloth was indeed created in the 1st century AD. However, according to Dr Walter McCrone and his associates, who conducted tests on the shroud in 1979 and 1980, the image is composed of red ochre and vermilion, in a binding of egg tempera. Both red ochre and vermilion are common pigments used in paint. Tests for body fluids, meanwhile, were negative, all of which suggest that the image had been painted on, not naturally created by human blood and or sweat. In 1988, the shroud was tested again, this time by radiocarbon dated conducted by separate labs in England, Switzerland and Arizona. The tests revealed that the shroud dated from no earlier than 1260, and most likely from around the mid-14th century, about the time it first appeared in the historical record. However, Stephen Mattingly, a professor with the University of Texas Health Centre, suggests that the tests might have been made inaccurate by bacteria that may now contaminate the shroud, and that the bacteria that is present in such appreciable concentrations that its age cannot be properly carbon dated. Those who put their faith in the accuracy of the radiocarbon dating, however, point out that to alter a first century date, to a 14th century date requires contaminants weighing roughly twice as much as the tested material. Is the Shroud of Turin the image of Jesus of Nazareth? Dismissing the evidence to the contrary, true believers are unlikely to concede that the venerated relic is a forgery. So for the time being, the date of the Shroud of Turin remains a mystery of science and of faith. And the following story comes from the usatoday.com website and it's written by Monika Skislowska. 
A Polish monastery may hold unknown Mozart works. Warsaw. A team of musicologists is reviewing 19th century copies of musical scores from a Polish monastery's archives in hopes that some might prove to be previously unknown works by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, the lead scholar said on Tuesday. The team is focused on nine scores, though the musicologists will review 2,000 from the Jasna Góra Monastery in Czestokowa in southern Poland. The scores could be compilations from various Mozart works, or compositions by other authors just signed in his name, or, in the luckiest case for us, they could be unknown, authentic Mozart, Remigius Pospiek, head of the research team, told the Associated Press. In that case, we could talk of a sensation, but Ulrich Leisinger, head of research at the International Mozartium Foundation in Salzburg, Austria, said it was highly unlikely that new works by Mozart would be discovered. Mozart kept a catalogue of all his works from 1784 on, Lysinger told the Associated Press in a telephone interview. This catalogue does not contain any major work we are missing. Pospiek and more than a dozen young musicologists from across Poland have been searching through the archives for rare music that could be performed at the monastery's annual music festival and recorded. The copied scores in Jasnogora's archives were made for the monastery's music ensemble, active between the late 16th and early 20th centuries. At issue in the search is whether monastery musicians copied Mozart works that have since gone missing. Pospiek, a musicologist from the University of Opol in southern Poland, said he was sceptical about the origins of the Mozart-attributed scores, including a soprano aria that are not listed in the register of the composer's work, the so-called Koshal Catalogue. A recent performance of that aria at the monastery, however, spurred him into seeking to confirm its authenticity. So far the team has declared four of the scores carrying Mozart's name to be misattributions. Seven others are copies of well-known Mozart works, including the Requiem. That leaves nine for further research. Much of the music for today's podcast comes from the Podsafe Music Network and they can be found at music.podshow.com And don't forget the show notes are located at www.origins.info And if you get a chance to provide some feedback for the show through the Dig site or iTunes or wherever you found the feed, it would be greatly appreciated. And for those interested in how the show's going in regards to circulation, we're currently experiencing around 400 downloads a week, which is quite good. And at this point I'd like to thank Matt Humphrey, or Humsky, who has dug this podcast on the dig site. Not only that, he's given me a vote for every episode. Thanks Matt, it's greatly appreciated. It's people like you that inspire me to keep going.
And now a story from the NewScientist.com website, and it's written by Ewan Calloway. And this article is saying that religion is a product of evolution, or so some software suggests. God may work in mysterious ways, but a single computer program may explain how religion evolved. By distilling religious belief into a genetic predisposition to pass along unverifiable information, the program predicts that religion will flourish. However, religion only takes hold if non-believers help believers out, perhaps because they are impressed by their devotion. If a person is willing to sacrifice for an abstract god, then people feel like they are willing to sacrifice for the community, says James Dow, an evolutionary anthropologist at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan, who wrote the program called EvoGod. And if you go to the website in the show notes, you can actually download the code. Dow is by no means the first scientist to take a stab at explaining how religion emerged. Theories on the evolution of religion tend towards two camps. One argues that religion is a mental artefact, co-opted from brain functions that evolved for other tasks. Another contends that religion benefited our ancestors. Rather than being a byproduct of other brain functions, it is an adaptation in its own right. In this explanation, natural selection slowly purged human populations of the non-religious. Sometime between 100,000 years ago to the point where writing was invented, maybe around 7000 BC, we begin to have records of people's supernatural beliefs, Dow says. To determine if it was possible for religion to emerge as an adaptation, Dow wrote a single computer program that focuses on the evolutionary benefits people receive from their interactions with one another. What people are adapting to is other people, he says. To simplify matters, Dow picked a defining trait of religion, the desire to proclaim religious information to others, such as a belief in the afterlife. He assumed that this trait was genetic. The model assumes, in other words, that a small number of people have a genetic predisposition to communicate unverifiable information to others. They passed on that trait to their children, but they also interacted with people who didn't spread unreal information. The model looks at the reproductive success of the two sorts of people, those who pass on real information and those who pass on unreal information. Under most scenarios, believers in the unreal went extinct. But when Dow included the assumption that non-believers would be attracted to religious people because of some clear but arbitrary signal, religion flourished. Somehow the communicators of unreal information are attracting others to communicate real information to them, Dow says, speculating that perhaps the non-believers are touched by the faith of the religious. Richard Sosis, an evolutionary anthropologist at the University of Connecticut and Storrs, says the model adds a new dimension to the debate over how religion could have evolved, which has previously relied on verbal arguments and speculation. But these are baby steps, he cautions. Sosis previously found that in some populations, kibbutzism in Israel for instance, 
more religious people receive more assistance from others than the less faithful. But he notes that the forces that maintain religion in modern humans could be very different from those that promoted its emergence thousands of years ago. Paleolithic humans were probably far more reliant than modern humans on the community they were born into, Sosa says. Now you can be a Lutheran one week and decide the following week that you are going to become a Buddhist. And coming up in a moment from the history section of the LiveScience.com website is the story by Randolph E. Schmid. Stonehenge was a long-time burial ground. Washington. England's enigmatic stone henge served as a burial ground from its earliest beginnings and for several hundred years thereafter, new research indicates. Dating of cremated remains shows burial took place as early as 3000 BC, when the first ditches around the monument were being built, researchers said on Thursday. And those burials continued for at least 500 years when the giant stones that marked the mysterious circle were being erected, they said. It's now clear that burials were a major component of Stonehenge in all its main stages, said Mike Parker Pearson, archaeology professor at the University of Sheffield in England and head of the Stonehenge Riverside Archaeological Project. In the past, many archaeologists had thought that burials at Stonehenge continued for only about a century, the researchers said. Stonehenge was a place of burial from its beginning to its zenith in the mid-third millennium BC. The cremation burial dating to Stonehenge's sarsen stones phase is likely just one of the many from this later period of the monument's use and demonstrates that it was still very much a domain of the dead, Parker Pearson said in a statement. The researchers also excavated homes nearby at Durrington Walls which they said appeared to be seasonal homes related to Stonehenge. It's a quite extraordinary settlement. We've never seen anything like it before, Parker Pearson said. The village appeared to be a land of the living and Stonehenge was a land of the ancestors, he said. There were at least 300 and perhaps as many as 1,000 homes in the village, he said. The small homes were occupied in midwinter and midsummer. The village also included a circle of wooden pillars, which they have named the Southern Circle. It is oriented towards the midwinter sunrise, the opposite of Stonehenge, which is oriented towards the midsummer sunrise. The research was supported by the National Geographic Society, which discusses Stonehenge in its June magazine and will feature the new burial data on National Geographic Channel on Sunday. The researchers said the earliest cremation burial was a small group of bones and teeth found in the pits called the Aubury Holes and dated to 3030 to 2880 BC, about the time when the first ditch and bark monument was being built. 
Remains from the surrounding ditch included an adult dated to 2930 to 2870 BC and the most recent cremation, Parker Pearson said, comes from the ditch's northern side and was of a 25-year-old woman. It dated to 2570 to 2340 BC, around the time the first arrangements of large sarsen stones appeared at Stonehenge. According to Parker Pearson's team, this is the first time any of the cremation burials from Stonehenge have been radiocarbon dated. The burials dated by the group were excavated in the 1950s and have been kept at the nearby Salisbury Museum. In the 1920s, an additional 49 cremation burials were dug up at Stonehenge, but all were reburied because they were thought to be of no scientific value, the researchers said. They estimate that up to 240 people were buried within Stonehenge, all as cremation deposits. Team member Andrew Chamberlain suggested that the cremation burials represent the natural deaths of a single elite family and its descendants, perhaps a ruling dynasty. A clue to this, he said, is the small number of burials in Stonehenge's earliest phase, a number that grows larger in subsequent centuries, as offspring would have multiplied. Parker Pearson added, I don't think it was the common people getting buried at Stonehenge. It was clearly a special place at that time. One has to assume anyone buried there had some good credentials. The actual building and purpose of Stonehenge remains a mystery that has long drawn speculation from many sources. And now an article from space.newscientist.com, and it's by Stephen Battersby. Was Mars too salty for life? If life ever got going on Mars... It may have been exterminated four billion years ago by a build-up of salt. Evidence that the planet is so poisonously salty comes from a study of minerals near the Martian surface. While exploring Mars's Meridiani Plain, the rover Opportunity discovered ancient deposits of magnesium sulphate that appear to have been left behind by salty water. Nicholas Tosca of Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts and colleagues have calculated the likely salt content of that water based on the types of mineral deposited and the chemistry of the Martian surface. They use a fairly abstruse measure of saltiness called water activity which decreases as you add salt to water. Pure water has an activity of 1, seawater 0.98. Few terrestrial organisms can survive at a water activity below 0.85. 
Tosca and his group found that the waters flowing across the Meridiani Plain had an activity of at most 0.86. That value would rule out most forms of earthly life. And the team's analysis suggests that the water activity was probably even lower, perhaps below the survival thresholds of any salt-resistant organisms known on Earth. The current record holder is a fungus that can still grow with a salt activity as low as 0.61. The deposits on the Meridiani Plain are known to be between 3.5 and 4 billion years old, implying that Martian water was already an unhealthily salty soup by that time, less than a billion years after the planet was formed. What this work establishes is that if there was an early window for life on Mars, it was indeed short, Tosca told New Scientist. As Mars has continued to lose atmospheric water to space since those minerals were laid down, the salt has probably been concentrated further. That means any liquid water remaining today beneath the surface might be even less palatable. The salty waters weren't limited to the Meridiani area, an instrument called Omega on Europe's Mars Express spacecraft can sample Martian chemistry remotely by analysing the spectrum of light bouncing off the surface rocks. Omega has found evidence that the same minerals are widespread on Mars. In fact, Meridiani might have been one of the least hostile environments on Mars. We looked at a variety of other localities, including some Martian meteorites, says Tosca. They are all much, much worse. It is possible, he admits, that some extremophile organisms will be discovered on Earth that can survive even saltier environments. Or it could be that Martian life started out with very different chemistry from ours. The important question is whether life could have originated at high salinity, says Tosca. Rover team member Harry McSween of the University of Tennessee in Knoxville agrees with the study's findings. It's a sobering conclusion, but I find it very convincing, McSween told New Scientist. They present a cogent argument that Mars is, and maybe always has been, sterile. And a brand new article from thedaminteresting.com, written by Alan Bellows on May the 30th, 2008. Clever Hands, the Math Horse. In the late 1800s, a German high school mathematics instructor named Wilhelm von Osten was pushing a few scientific envelopes from his home in Berlin. Among other things, he was a student of phrenology, 
the now discredited theory that one's intelligence, character and personality traits can be derived based on the shape of one's head. But it was his keen interest in animal intelligence that would ultimately win him fame. Von Austen firmly believed that humanity had greatly underestimated the reasoning skills and intelligence of animals. To test his hypothesis, he took it upon himself to tutor a cat, a horse and a bear in the ways of mathematics. The cat was indifferent to his efforts and the bear seemed outright hostile, but the Arab stallion named Hans showed real promise. With further tutelage, Hans the horse learned to use his hoof to tap out numbers written on a blackboard. Much to von Austen's delight, jotting a three on the blackboard would prompt a tap, tap, tap from his pupil, a feat which Hans could repeat for any number under ten. Encouraged by his success, von Austen pressed his student further. The scientist drew out some basic arithmetic problems on his chalkboard and attempted to train the horse in the symbol's meanings. Hans had no problem keeping up with the curriculum and soon he was providing the correct responses to a variety of math problems including basic square roots and fractions. Hans was proving to be a clever horse indeed. Starting in 1891 Von Osten began parading clever hands all over Germany to show off the horse's mathematical proficiency. As word of the spectacle spread, Hans's free exhibitions began drawing larger and larger crowds of curious onlookers. They were seldom disappointed. If the first day of the month is a Wednesday, Von Osten would ask Hans, who had learned to respond to verbal questions, what is the date of the following Monday? Six hoof taps would follow. What is the square root of 16? Four taps. Von Osten also explained to astonished crowds that hands could spell out words with taps, where one tap is an A, two taps a B, and so on. Hans would then demonstrate this talent by spelling out the names of people he knew and responding to simple questions. He could also tap out the time of the day. Though he made mistakes occasionally, his accuracy was found to be roughly 89%. By some estimates, Hans' grasp of mathematics was equivalent to a 14-year-old's. Naturally, there were many sceptics, particularly after the New York Times featured the crafty horse in a front-page story. Germany's Board of Education asked to conduct an independent investigation into Hans's abilities, and von Osten agreed. He was a man of science, after all, and he knew there was no fraud to expose. The board members assembled a number of scientific minds to join the Hans Commission, including two zoologists, a psychologist, a horse trainer, several school teachers, and a circus manager. Following extensive independent testing, the Commission concluded in 1904 that there was no trickery involved in Hans's responses. As far as they could tell, the horse's talents were genuine. The Hans Commission then passed the investigation on to Oskar Funkst, a psychologist with some novel ideas on how best to unravel the mystery. Funkst erected a large tent to house his experiments, 
thereby removing the contaminating effects of outside visual stimuli. In order to produce a sufficient data set, the scientists compiled a very large list of questions and carefully outlined the different variables that were to be considered. Thus, Funkst began his interrogation of Hans. As expected, Hans performed very well when questions were posed by his owner, von Osten. He also received very high marks for accuracy with other questioners under normal conditions. But when the experiment called for the questioner to stand farther away, something interesting happened. The horse's accuracy diminished somewhat, though it wasn't immediately clear why. It was the final two variables which proved to be the most revealing. In instances where the questioner did not know the answer to a question in advance, the accuracy of Hans's responses plummeted to nearly zero. Likewise, when the questioner was completely concealed from him. It seemed that Hans's cleverness hinged on his ability to have a close-up, unobstructed view of the person who knew the correct answer. The researchers also found evidence that hounding a horse with questions he can't answer leads to painful horse bites. Fungst continued his experiments, but with a new emphasis on observing the humans interacting with hands. The psychologist immediately noticed that each questioner's breathing, posture and facial expression involuntarily changed each time the hoof tapped showing ever so slight increases in tension. Once the correct tap was made, the subtle underlying tension suddenly disappeared from the person's face, which Hans apparently took as the cue to stop tapping. Funkst also noticed that this tension was not present when the questioner was unaware of the correct answer, which left Hans without the necessary feedback. Though the experiment strongly indicated that the horse probably had no real grasp of math, it did uncover an extraordinary insight. Hans wasn't dipping into a reservoir of intellect to work out the answers. He was merely being receptive to the subtle unconscious cues which were universally present in his human questioners. There is evidence to indicate that horses may possess an enhanced sensitivity to inconspicuous body language perhaps as a key part of their social interactions with other horses. Once he became aware of these cues, Funks was able to rival Hans's accuracy by placing himself in the horse role, tapping out his answers to researchers' questions and keeping a sharp eye on their body language. Even more interestingly, he discovered that questioners seemed unable to suppress these subtle cues, even when they were made aware of them. In the intervening years, it has been found that many animals are sensitive to such cues from their human masters. Today, the term clever hands effect is used to describe the influence of a questioner's subtle and unintentional cues upon their subjects, in both humans and in animals. To prevent prejudices and foreknowledge from contaminating experimental results, modern science employs the double-blind method, where researchers and subjects are unaware of many details of the experiment until after the results are recorded. For instance, when drug-sniffing dogs undergo training, none of the people present know which containers have drugs in them, 
otherwise their body language might betray the location and render the exercise useless. Wilhelm von Osten never really accepted the clever hand's explanation. So he and his horse continued to put on their math and body language show throughout Germany for some time. Throughout their career, the pair continued to draw large and enthusiastic crowds. Though Hans the horse knew nothing of math and had a flimsy grasp of German at best, his ability to fool so many people for so long clearly gives him a legitimate claim to cleverness. Considering his gifts in reading humans' unconscious tells, there's also little doubt that with some opposable thumbs and a stack of high society, Hans would have made one hell of a card player. And now I'm going to return to a segment I used to do earlier in this series, a reading from Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things. Superstitions, 50,000 years ago, Western Asia. Napoleon feared black cats, Socrates the evil eye. Julius Caesar dreaded dreams. Henry VIII claimed witchcraft trapped him into a marriage with Anne Boleyn. Peter the Great suffered a pathological terror of crossing bridges. Samuel Johnson entered and exited a building with his right foot foremost. Bad luck superstitions still keep many people from walking under a ladder, opening an umbrella indoors or boarding an aeroplane on Friday the 13th. On the other hand, these same people hoping for good luck might cross their fingers or knock on wood. Superstitious beliefs, given their irrational nature, should have receded with the arrival of education and the advent of science. Yet even today, when objective evidence is highly valued, few people, if pressed, would not admit to secretly cherishing one or two or many superstitions. Across America, tens of thousands of lottery tickets are pencilled in every day, based on nothing more or less than people's lucky numbers. Perhaps this is how it should be, for superstitions are an ancient part of our human heritage. Archaeologists identify Neanderthal man, who roamed throughout Western Asia 50,000 years ago, as having produced the first superstitious and spiritual belief survival in an afterlife. Whereas earlier Homo sapiens abandoned the dead, Neanderthals buried their dead with ritual funerals, interning the body with food, weapons and fire charcoals to be used in the next life. That superstition and the birth of spirituality go hand in hand is not surprising. Throughout history, one person's superstition was often another's religion. The Christian Emperor Constantine called paganism superstition, while the pagan statesman Tacitus called Christianity a pernicious irrational belief. 
Protestants regarded the Catholic veneration of saints and relics as superstitious, while Christians similarly viewed Hindu practices. To an atheist, all religious beliefs are superstitions. Today there seems to be no logical reason why a wishbone symbolises good luck, while a broken mirror augurs the opposite. But in earlier times, every superstition had a purposeful origin, a cultural background and a practical explanation. Superstitions arose in a straightforward manner. Primitive man, seeking answers phenomena such as lightning, thunder, eclipses, birth and death, and lacking knowledge of the laws of nature, developed a belief in unseen spirits. He observed that animals possessed a sixth sense to danger and imagined that spirits whispered secret warnings to them. And the miracle of a tree sprouting from a seed or a frog from a tadpole pointed to otherworldly intervention. His daily existence fraught with hardships. He assumed that the world was more populated with vengeful spirits than with beneficent ones. Thus, the preponderance of superstitious beliefs we inherited involve ways to protect ourselves from evil. To protect himself in what seemed like a helter-skelter world, ancient man adopted the foot of a rabbit, the flip of a coin and a four-leaved clover. It was an attempt to impose human will on chaos. And when one amulet failed, he tried another, then another. In this way, thousands of ordinary objects, expressions and incantations assumed magical significance. In a sense, we do the same thing today. A student writes a prize-winning paper with a certain pen, and that pen becomes lucky. A horse player scores high on a rainy day, and weather is then factored into his betting. We make the ordinary extraordinary. In fact... There's scarcely a thing in our environment around which some culture has not woven a superstitious claim. Mistletoe, garlic, apples, horseshoes, umbrellas, hiccups, stumbling, cross fingers, rainbows. And that's barely the beginning. Though we have now scientific explanations for many once mysterious phenomena, daily life still holds enough unpredictability that we turn, especially in times of misfortune, to superstitions to account for the unaccountable, to impose our own wishes on world vicissitudes. So, thumbs up, fingers crossed, with luck, here are the ancient origins of many of our most cherished, irrational beliefs. Cross my heart. Over the next few episodes, I'll be going through the origin of some of these superstitions, according to Panati's extraordinary origins of everyday things. But for today, we're going to be looking at the rabbit's foot, pre-600 BC, Western Europe. Adhering strictly to early tradition, a person in search of luck should carry the foot of a hare, the rabbit's larger cousin. Historically, it was the hare's foot that possessed magical powers. However, most early European peoples confused the rabbit with the hare, and in time the feet of both animals were prized as potent good luck charms. The luck attributed to a rabbit's foot stems from a belief rooted in ancient totemism. The claim 
predating Darwinism by thousands of years, that humankind descended from animals. Differing from Darwinism, however, totemism held that every tribe of people evolved from a separate species of animal. A tribe worshipped and refrained from killing its ancestral animal and employed parts of that animal as amulets, called totems. Remains of totemism are with us today. In biblical literature, totemism is the origin of many dietary laws prohibiting consumption of certain animals. It has also given us the custom of the sports mascot, believed to secure luck for a team, as well as our penchant for classifying groups of people by animal images or trays. On Wall Street there are bulls and bears, in government hawks and doves, and in politics elephants and donkeys. We may have abandoned the practice of physically carrying around our identifying totems, but they are with us nonetheless. Folklorists have not yet identified the hare tribal society that gave the early inhabitants of Western Europe, sometime before 600 BC, the rabbit foot amulet. They have ample evidence, though, of why this lagomorph became a symbol of good luck, not bad. The rabbit's habit of burrowing lent it an aura of mystery. The Celts, for instance, believed that the animal spent so much time underground because it was in secret communication with the netherworld of Numina. Thus, a rabbit was privy to information humans were denied. And the fact that most animals, including humans, are born with their eyes closed, while rabbits enter the world with eyes wide open, imbued them with an image of wisdom, for the Celts, rabbits witnessed the mysteries of prenatal life. Actually, the hare is born with open eyes, the rabbit is born blind, and it is the rabbit that burrows, hares live above ground, confusion abounded. It was the rabbit's fecundity, though, that helped to give its body parts their strongest association with good luck and prosperity. So prolific was the animal that early peoples regarded it as an outstanding example of all that was procreative in nature. To possess any part of a rabbit, tail, ear, foot or dried innards assured a person's good fortune. Interestingly, the foot was always the preferred totem, believed to be luckier than any other body part. Why the foot? Folklorists claim that long before Freudian sexual interpretations existed, man in his cave drawings and stone sculptures incorporated the foot as a phallic symbol, a totem to foster fertility in women, and a cornucopian harvest in the fields. As some of you may know, I create another podcast called Bizarre Bizarre, which is about the strange, the unusual, the interesting, the fascinating stories that happen on the internet and elsewhere. Well, that podcast is not being very highly subscribed at the moment, and I'm considering closing that one down. 
So what I might do is take some more of the interesting stories that I would have used on that podcast and place them on the end of this one, just to finish on a bit of a humorous note. If you don't like the idea, let me know at paulrex at paulrex.com. Hello. Hello. Quiet, numbskulls, I'm broadcasting. Welcome to the new section of the Origins podcast, The World Wide Weird. Brave task to avoid Shakespearean curse. London. Fix the grave site, just don't touch the bones. That's the work order for brave architects contemplating a repair job for William Shakespeare's cursed grave inside the Holy Trinity Church in his home of Stratford-upon-Avon. The bard is believed to have penned the threat on a stone marker above his grave. Blessed be the man that spares these stones, it reads, and cursed be he that moves my bones. The stones above his grave are falling apart. Clergymen have trod on them for nearly four centuries. People who love the church and its place in British literary history want to fix it, provided they can do so without digging up Shakespeare's remains and tempting the mysterious threat. We're avoiding the curse, said Josephine Walker, a spokeswoman for the Friends of Shakespeare's church group. We are not lifting the stones, we are not looking underneath, and the curse is for the bones underneath, so the curse is irrelevant for this work. Story 2. Spaced Out with Beer. Tokyo. Japanese beer lovers can anticipate an out-of-this-world brew made with barley descended from grains that travelled in outer space. The space beer to be test-brewed by Sapporo breweries will come in a pilot edition of 100 bottles to be ready in November, a company spokesperson said. The beer will be made with barley to be harvested this weekend, descended from seeds that spent five months in 2006 aboard the International Space Station. We're really looking forward to tasting it when it's ready, said a brewery spokesman. The barley project started when the Sapporo teamed up with the Okayama University biologists working with the Russian space team. They took 26 grams of barley into space for storage inside the space station from April to September in 2006. The project is part of biological studies of the adaptability of plants to environmental changes and the impact from stresses such as space travel. The company spokesman said Sapporo was not planning to sell the special brew, at least for now and had not decided how it would distribute the planned 100 bottles. Story 3. Fans prefer football to sex. 
Half of European football fans prefer to watch important matches than have sex, according to a straw poll. The poll, sponsored by one of the backers of the upcoming Euro 2008 Championships, showed that the results from individual countries vary. The largest majority preferring to watch football to making love being 72% of Spanish supporters. Surprising given the lack of success their national side has had. To 25% of Italian fans duly holding up their reputation as Latin lovers. The poll also saw 60% of the 2,000 supporters polled declare that football was like a religion to them. Story number four. Knievel's son takes a 60-metre leap. Mason, Ohio. Robbie Captain Knievel, son of the late daredevil Evil Knievel, jumped over 24 delivery trucks yesterday at the site of one of his father's most famous stunts. Hopefully I'll see you after the jump. Knievel told a crowd before he climbed the start ramp. Knievel, 46, had said he would need to be doing 153 kilometres per hour at takeoff for the 60 metre jump, which began from a three storey tall ramp and was completed among wild cheers, booming explosions, and shooting flames at King Island Amusement Park near Cincinnati, Ohio. After touching down at the tip of the landing ramp, Knievel gave the crowd the thumbs up, raced his bike back and forth and popped a wheelie. He took a really hard shot at the landing, said Knievel's business partner Jeff Lowe. But he's thrilled. We're all thrilled. He was a lot more nervous about this jump than he let on. Evil Knievel jumped 35 metres over 14 buses at Kings Island in 1975 in an event that was watched by more than half the nation's television viewers. He died last year at the age of 69 after suffering from failing health for many years. The Kentucky Post reported that local Tom Turner was thrilled to have witnessed the latest jump. It was the greatest experience of my life right there. That was really cool, Mr Turner said. Mr Lowe said Knievel's motorcycle did bottom out on the landing, putting a lot of pressure on Knievel's back. Just before the jump, Knievel dedicated the feat to the US troops of past and present, as well as to his late father, saying, I'll be up there to see you soon, Dad, but hopefully not today. And the final story for today. Museum puts naked mummies under wraps. London. A British museum is covering up its collection of ancient Egyptian mummies after visitor complaints about them going on show, naked. Two unwrapped mummies and one partially wrapped mummy out of 11 on display at the Manchester Museum in northwest England were covered after comments were received that they should be treated with more respect and dignity. The mummies will be kept under wraps temporarily while a public consultation is carried out about the best way to display human remains at the centre, said the Deputy Director. This is an interim measure designed to find out public reaction because of the negative comments we have been getting, especially about the unwrapped mummies, he said. We collect visitor comments on a regular basis and over the last few months there have been an awful lot of people questioning the public and educational value of showing such mummies. 
He said that public perception of displaying human remains, particularly those from the US, Australia and New Zealand, had shifted and questions are now being asked why Egyptian remains are treated differently. British public opinion has also been affected by recent revelations about the unauthorised detention by pathologists of children's organs at British hospitals. Beinkowski, the deputy director of the museum, accepted that covering the mummies was slightly provocative, but said it was designed to generate debate and to determine whether the museum's policy on displaying human remains should be applied consistently. Reaction on the museum's weblog showed that many Egyptologists are against the move. One respondent called it totally misguided, another called it misinformed, while a third called it a step backwards. The chairman of the Manchester Ancient Egypt Society, Bob Partridge, called the decision ridiculous and that he was almost at a loss for words. If the University Museum is to continue its policy of education and informing visitors, then covering up the mummies is not achieving this end and is making the museum a subject of ridicule, he wrote on the site. The Manchester Museum is home to one of Britain's largest collections of artefacts from ancient Egypt, with about 20,000 objects. Well, that concludes episode 34 of Origins. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you do get a chance to provide some feedback at Dig or iTunes or wherever you found the feed, that is greatly appreciated. I do like to know what you think about the show. And bye for now. As long as you're there, I got everything I need Pennies from the heavens, treasures from the sea As long as you're there, I got everything, everything, everything Would you like to climb with me? Let our love be stronger than a mountain That our love will be wilder than the ocean Do you want to take a chance And walk this world with me Hear the knock of opportunity As long as there's love I got everything I need Pennies from the heavens Treasures from the sea As long as there's love, I got everything, everything, everything Would you like to climb with me? Let our love be stronger than that Would you fly with me? Let our love be higher than that
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.